that's the way they trap people getting into to those sorts of, of sites. And then they steal their credentials, sometimes change bank information, can sometimes steal money for when you actually get your tax return, all of those sorts of things. So according to Mimecast, 53% of South African respondents in its latest research saw an increase in phishing attacks using a malicious links or attachments over the past year. Talk to us about that. Okay, so what we're seeing is a combination of things. So first of all, what companies are seeing is attacks on the companies themselves. So, and as when I say companies, I mean companies and organizations, could be government departments, could be municipalities, could be companies. Um, and so what they're seeing is, is attacks that are coming in primarily by email. Um, email is what in the cybersecurity industry, what we call the number one attack vector. Uh, that's not to say they're not other ways of getting into a company, but it's, email is one of the most efficient ways that an attack they can get in because it's so easy to impersonate something and, and make someone make an email look like it's coming from someone else. So what we're seeing is a large number of organizations are experiencing these types of attacks. But it's not unique to organizations. We're also seeing that what's happening is those organizations' customers uh, are getting attacked as well. And that's one of the hardest things to actually sort of work against and, and try and prevent. So the thing with email is it's a, it's a fairly old application. I mean, it's one of the first applications that was actually designed for the Internet. And so the standards are not particularly secure. That's not to say that they're insecure, but there's, there's many ways that you can actually impersonate someone else via email. And so the challenge, you know, if I was, just, I was a, um, a sort of a cyber criminal mastermind and I wanted to invent some method that could get me into every consumer in the world, um, or just about every consumer in the world, get into every single company, I would actually design something that looked a lot like email because I can create a message, I can send it to the person, I can pretend to be some, from someone they trust, maybe a doctor, maybe their supplier, you know, the insurance company, their lawyer, whatever the case might be, and I can create those emails and send them through. And unless that company has got security mechanisms like Mimecast, like a secure email gateway that's actually looking for these threats, um, those things slide through. And then you're relying purely on the recipient of that email, the end user, basically, to be alert for suspicious characteristics in that email. And most of the time, we're actually busy just trying to earn our living, do our day job. You know, we're not, we don't sort of have cybersecurity top of mind all the time. And that's how these guys get in. Um, they also do very clever things as they, they sort of play on our emotions. So sometimes they'll tell you you've won a competition. Sometimes, uh, you know, one of the simplest ways to get people to, to open an email or an attachment is to say, here's the salary information of everybody in the company. Or here's a retrenchment letter. You know, it's totally fake. But, you know, if someone sends you a retrenchment letter, you're probably going to open it. And then what happens is that's not actually a true retrenchment letter, but what it does is it actually downloads a virus or a piece of malware onto your computer and then the attacker sort of takes it from there. So what are some of the um, useful tips you can share to help taxpayers, that is, um, businesses and individuals, to stay safe? So I think from a, let's start with the business side of things. So from, from a business point of view, what businesses should be doing is ensuring they've actually got appropriate systems like Mimecast, for example, that can actually protect their, their employees from these kind of attacks. Um, the other thing that those companies can do is actually try and protect their customers. And one of the ways they can do that is by protecting their brand and getting services of cybersecurity companies who actually go and look and see where their brand, whether you're a bank or whether you're a tax authority, whatever the case is, where you're being impersonated on the Internet and get those sites taken down. From a consumer point of view, if you're a taxpayer or you're just a, you know, a person in the street or an employee, um, there's quite a lot of things you can do, but one of them is actually to just be suspicious. You know, look for suspicious characteristics in an email. If you're getting an email from, for example, your boss, um, and the, that boss, he or she, is asking you to do something that they've never asked you to do before, you should be suspicious. Pick up the phone, phone them. 
Um, you know, there's a number of different things. If it's playing on your emotions, getting you to do something urgently or, you know, making you fearful for some reason, these are tricks that these fraudsters use to try and get you to do something, get you in an emotional state. And then what you do is you, you, you know, you're not thinking straight. And people have transferred literally millions of, of dollars of money um, in, you know, by, by just being in the wrong state, thinking it's their boss, asking them to do something urgent or their financial manager, whatever the case may be. So really, I think for sort of you distill that down to its simplest thing is try and maintain a healthy skepticism and be constantly suspicious. Don't assume because the email says it comes from someone you trust that it is actually that person who sent it. That's Brian Pinnock, cybersecurity expert at Mimecast, on the line talking to Lebuchang Mabange. Absolutely agreeing with what Brian Pinnock was saying over there. Just because the email comes from someone whom you trust, uh, then uh, don't just think that it is from that person. I actually have a very personal story with regards to that, and that's exactly why I do not submit my tax returns online. I opened an account with uh, the SARS, uh, South African Revenue Services, for e-filing, and a couple of uh, days after I had done that, I got an email saying that I need to send them my uh, account details. And uh, it turns out that it was actually a phishing scam. So I'm very, very, very skeptical when it comes to anything that comes via email. The Rwandan refugee community in South Africa has reacted with shock at the death of Louis Baziga, who was murdered by a group of unidentified gunmen in Mozambique. Baziga, who was the head of the Rwandan community in Mozambique, was reportedly killed in his car in Matola area in the Mozambican capital Maputo. Matola is the largest suburb of Maputo and it is home to the biggest industrial area in the southern African country. Reports say Baziga, who was a businessman in Mozambique, was blocked by two vehicles as he drove in the Maputo suburb. He was shot at and died on the spot. More from Daniel Sengimana, head of the Rwandan refugee community in South Africa. Actually, the Rwandan community in South Africa, which I'm leading, is a refugee one. It's a refugee Rwandan community, which is separate from the other called Rwandan community of the current government of Rwanda under the name of diaspora. If I can say something, I know that uh, the pastor, Pastor Louis Baziga, have been a refugee for so long time, uh, since 1994 uh, when he went to Congo, he passed far in Malawi. But later on, he changed his status to, then he started working for the government, which he claimed he ran away from, uh, whereby he was uh, uh, the leader of Rwandan diaspora in Mozambique. That's uh, actually what I know about him. So then what is your reaction to him now being murdered in Mozambique? I can't say much about his murder, but uh, what I know, I would send the condolence to the family. Because as a human being, once someone passed on, uh, there's nothing else which you can say except uh, sending the condolences. And reports say this was not the first attempt on Bazeka's life. As a refugee in a foreign country, is it concerning that people who seek greener pastures in other countries are being killed like this? Normally, this thing, uh, this murder of Rwandan refugees or Rwandan who are abroad have been taking place for so many times. And uh, it has become as an habit now. Uh, what I can say, like uh, here in South Africa, I know there are numbers of people have murdered, uh, who have murdered by the Rwandan government. Actually, for now, I, I don't know either Baziga's murder or 
is the Rwandan government involved or any other thing. That was Daniel Sengimana, head of the Rwandan refugee community in South Africa, on the line talking to Nklantla Mashangu. The time is 17.27 Central African time. A quick reminder that if you want to get in contact with us, there are multiple platforms for you to do that. Info at channelafrica.co.za is where we are available on email. And uh, WhatsApp is plus 27763003327. And you can also tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Right after this, we're going to go over to the news desk where Onelens is standing by to let us know what is happening in the latest news headlines across the globe every second there's always a breaking story what we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people the government concurs with the views of the black economic empowerment council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on black economic empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling but at the same time always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 17.30 Central African Time, here's Onele with the headlines. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The bodies of five migrants have been recovered off Libya's coast while up to 20 others missing after a European-bound boat sank. Malawi President Peter Mutarikar bans demonstrations in the country and masses of people in the northwest and southwestern regions of Cameroon continue to flee the country in the fear of further escalations of violence. Channel African News, I'm Onelin Sinzi. SABC News independent and impartial from an african perspective 
While a lot of international attention has been on the devastating effects of fires ramaging uh, through the Amazon fire, uh, rainforest in Brazil, the latest U.S. National Aeronautics Space Administration, otherwise known as NASA's satellite images, show that forest fires in Central Africa appear to burn alarmingly like a red chain from Gabon to Angola, similar to the blazes in Brazil's Amazon that sparked global outcry. At the G7 summit this week, French President Emmanuel Macron tweeted about the fire in Central African region and said nations were examining a similar initiative to the one proposed to combat Brazil's blazes. For more on this, uh, Channel Africa's Kumbelo Munzelele spoke to Guilherme Lesquer, a Central African expert at the French Agricultural Research and Development Centre, and he began by asking him about the similarities between the two blazes. I don't think it's uh, it's fair because, I mean, they, this fire can be explained along completely different dynamics between uh, uh, let's say Central Africa, and I will be be more precise. Actually, it's not um, the rainforest of, of Central Africa that has, that is concerned by these fires, these fires but it's sure. uh, instead the, the south part of, of Central Africa. So, so that's basically the, the area between Central Africa, the rainforest area, and, and Southern Africa. So it's basically uh, cover Nyombo forest land, uh, agro forest land, savanna land, instead of, of, uh, of humid forest. And that's a, a main difference with, um, with what, what is happening in, in, in Brazil, because in Brazil it's ma- mainly uh, uh, humid rainforest with a, a large um, volume of biomass that is, that is burned every day uh, with, uh, with a thousand of, of, of fires. Uh, so that's the main difference. I mean, the, the, the ecosystems that are damaged by this fire are completely different between, between Africa, especially this uh, the source part of, of Central Africa and, and, and Brazil. Now, the Congo Basin Forest is common referred to as the second green lung of the planet after the Amazon. How key are the Central African forests in the fight against climate change? Well, actually, if you compare the deforestation rates between Central Africa, Southeast Asia, and, and, and Latin America, especially with the new dynamics in, in, in Brazil, I mean, the deforestation rates are much, much, much lower in Central Africa. So they are less concerned with the deforestation uh, dynamic and threat. So uh, just, just by comparing the, the rates, um, that doesn't, doesn't mean it's not important to try to fight as much as possible climate change, especially and deforestation. Well, there are many issues. Uh, one big issue is about um, to improve uh, agricultural practices, especially with small-scale farmers. That really depends on fire to uh, to grow their, their, their crops and the crops for, for, for feeding, not for exporting. That's another difference with Brazil because uh, the land that is today burnt and deforested is mainly to, to increase the surface of pasture. And pasture is, is, is to grow beef. And most of the beef are well, both for the domestic market in Brazil, but also in Europe and Latin America. So that's the main difference between um, where the struggle against deforestation in Central Africa and in, and in Brazil, for instance. The so Democratic Republic of Congo President Felix Chisikedi has warned uh, that the rainforests are threatened if the country does not improve its hydroelectric capacity. Do you agree? Yeah, sure, definitely, especially with the Inga Dam. I mean, there have been a not a controversy, but um, a long, long, long discussion about this Inga Dam. And I think part of this electricity that is supposed to be uh, produced there will, will be exported to South Africa, if I, if I remember well. So definitely, I mean, there is a problem of, of uh, accessing energy in, in DRC because um, there is no much um, energy coming from, from dams, for instance. And that means that most of the people, especially in rural 
areas. It depends on, on, on fuel wood and on charcoal, and that's, that's the main uh, pressure on forest resources, on timber resources. So as long as you don't fight, uh, increase the access of electricity, I mean, people will depend on that, and that means uh, a, a strong uh, factor in favor of deforestation by, by, well, by farmers, by people living in, in rural areas. At the G7 summit this week, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron tweeted about uh, the Central African fires and said nations were examining a similar initiative to the one proposed to combat Brazil's blazes. G7 nations have uh, pledged 20 million US dollars on the Amazon, mainly on fire fighting aircraft. Do you think the same initiative should be applied with regards to the fires in the Central African region? No, I don't think so. And as you know, I mean, the, the, the 20 million grant has been refused by President Bolsonaro, so it's not a topical anymore. But once again, it's, I don't think it's a solution for Central Africa because if you study the, the reality in, uh, in Central Africa, especially this land that is covered by red color on, on the NASA, NASA map, I and mean, it, it concerns millions of, of small-scale farmers, so you cannot fight against against fires with with, um, with aircraft. I mean, you have to, to to work with the people on the field to try to improve their agricultural practices and the way the market can be sensitive to uh, I don't know uh, green mark green green products, for instance, or, or legal products at least. So you have to to, to, to work on uh, on the field with the people to increase their to in, to improve their practices. It's not by uh, by giving well you can give some money, but I mean you um, this money should be well smartly used and especially to try to uh, promote um, smart um, solutions with, with farmers, because that's the main issue in, uh, in this part of Africa. You have, we have to increase the access to market, but also the agricultural practices. I mean, to reduce as much as possible shifty cultivation, to move from an extensive way of, of, of cultivation to a more intensive way of cultivation. And just in terms of the environmental policies, uh, we know that uh, some countries are now implementing stricter environmental policies. Gabon, for instance, has declared 13 national parks that make up 11% of its national territory. What should be done on environmental policy level to protect rainforests? Well, one solution that has been um, decided by, by Gabon, but also by Southern Africa, is, is to, to, to increase the number of national parks. But that's only part of the solution because most of the um, damage to, to natural resources happens outside of national parks and, and, and protected areas. So once again, you have to work with the people doing uh, cultivations, doing mining. And that was Guillaume Lesqueur, a Central African expert at the French Agricultural Research and Development Centre on the line from Paris in France, talking to Kumbelo Munzelele. Africa as a region has in recent years been hit by a number of climate-related disasters with deadly cyclone Adai ravaging uh, Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe, affecting almost 3 million people, including women and girls being the latest. The United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA, responsible for East and Southern Africa, is holding a three-day symposium focusing on sexual and reproductive health rights, gender and climate change resilience. According to uh, UNFPA, the purpose of the symposium is to generate fast-track actions that will be game-changing in building climate change resilience. The meeting, which started yesterday, is currently underway at the University of Pretoria, Future Africa Campus, South Africa. For more on this, here's UNFPA's East and Southern Africa Deputy Regional Director Justine Coulson. 
So we actually started yesterday with an 11-year-old environmental activist from Kyalisha Township in Cape Town, Yola Mokwana. And what she said is she's already living the future that others fear. And what she was really saying is that for some of us who, you know, maybe live in a, a flat where we turn on the tap and there's water, electricity, and we consume uh, food and plastics, and we don't really think about these things because we think about climate change as something in the future, the reality is that for girls like Lola, for communities across Africa, the impact of climate change is already very much a reality and has been the case for a number of years. And so that's one of the key reasons why we felt it was extremely important that as UNFPA, when we look at our key areas of our work, which is very much around you know, women's rights, women's empowerment, youth rights, youth empowerment, and also sexual and reproductive health and rights, that we actually consider those issues within the context of climate change because it's such a, an important issue now for the communities that we serve across the region. I mean, we also had with us actually the um, governor of the Federal Bank of Malawi, uh, Dr. Kabambe, you know, and he was saying that for him, where he sits currently, that climate change is the biggest threat of our time. That when he looks at the economic profile of Malawi over the last 60 years, he can very clearly see that whenever there is drought, whenever there is flood, it's also been linked to a recession. And as we see drought and flood cycles coming more frequently, it's having a huge impact on the sustainable um, development of uh, the communities that we serve across East Southern Africa. What are some of the points that are coming out in terms of the sort of action that is needed to ensure that especially young people who um, are vulnerable are resilient enough during um, climate-related disasters? So just this morning, we had a session run by a series of amazing youth climate activists. You know, and what they were saying is that we don't need governments or the UN to do things for us. We need you to work with us to find the solutions that we need. So they're running a whole series of local community projects. So reforestation, amazing apps to help people, you know, manage their local resources, working on innovations in agriculture. And what they were saying to us is where we need to partner much more, particularly, I think, as as UNFPA and the United Nations more generally, is to influence governments to ensure that the right policies and investments are in place to ensure that we have the right actions to help build resilience to climate change and also to help communities adapt the changes that, that climate change are bringing about. Now, the symposium concludes tomorrow. What would you say are some of the expected outcomes of this gathering? So, I mean, I think for us, the UNFPA, we really designed this symposium to bring together a whole range of different voices from across the region. So academics, youth activists, CSO representatives, other UN representatives and government. It's been an important wake-up call for us, but we recognize that very often we discuss climate change as an add-on. And yet we have to recognize that all the programming that we are doing across our 23 countries in East and Southern Africa all those countries are affected by climate change in some way. And we really need to be ensuring that the way that we design our programs is very uh, responsive to those specific local contextualized needs of those communities as they deal with um, you know, loss of water or degradation of land. And I think the other thing that's going to happen, because of course this is also about sexual reproductive health and rights, and really ensuring that in all climate actions that governments are taking, in all key policy instruments, in all key commitments, that governments do not forget that at times of acute and chronic stress caused by climate change, 
sexual and reproductive health and therefore the needs of women and girls come under stress. They come under threat. And we must ensure that we continue to invest in strengthening, maintaining, sustaining sexual reproductive health and rights through all, all of our climate action. And I think the other, the final thing is, you know, really ensuring that the partnerships that we have formed here, where we've brought in a lot of different perspectives and expertise, and this is really what effective climate action and adaptation requires, is different perspectives around the table, that those partnerships will continue and um, we will, you know, move forward to really mainstream increasing resilience and adaptation across our work. Now, finally, what is the connection of this symposium and the upcoming International Conference on Population and Development, um, which will be taking place in November in Nairobi? So, um, 25 years ago, uh, we had the International Conference on Population and Development. And at that conference, it was really the first time that all heads of state recognized that there is a fundamental human right to sexual and reproductive health, and most specifically, the right of women to decide, you know, how many children they have, when they have children, to make those decisions. That conference took place at a time when the world wasn't thinking about climate change. It was, you know, it seemed like a long, long way ahead. Now in Nairobi, we're going to be selling, uh, we're going to be celebrating 25 years of um, the ICPD, but now we're doing it in the context of climate change. And the reality is that many of the activists, the government representatives, and other partners who come to Nairobi to celebrate that moment with us are working in contexts where communities are affected on a daily basis by climate change. And so what we're hoping to do is take the findings and the um, discussions from this conference and make sure that when we go to Nairobi, there really is a, a true reflection on the need for supporting communities to adapt better and to build greater resilience, particularly in sexual reproductive health, to um, ensure that they can sustain through the climate change that they're currently seeing. That was Justine Coulson, Deputy Regional Director at the United Nations Population Fund, East and Southern Africa, on the line from Pretoria, talking to Jane Rabutata. Right now, let's cross on over to the new, to the money desk, rather. Here is uh, Tracy Boomgard with your latest economic news. Thank you, Samora. The Zimbabwe Energy Regulatory Authorities announced new fuel prices that will differ depending on location. This is the first time zero factored in the cost of fuel distribution according to zones. Motorists in Victoria Falls will now pay the most per litre of petrol, while Harare will pay the least. The fuel situation in the country has improved over the past few weeks as local currency prices move towards parity with the US dollar price. Nigeria does not have a debt problem, but a revenue problem. This is according to the country's Minister of Finance, Zainab Ahmed, speaking at a meeting with management staff of the Ministry of Budget and National Planning. She says this is despite concerns being raised over the country's rising debt profile. The minister noted that the federal government hoped to raise its revenue performance from the 55% that was attained last year to 85% in the next four years. Kenya has exported its first crude oil this week amid pointed speeches by local leaders asking the government to stick to its commitment to share revenues from future shipments equitably. 
Although commercial production is years away, the discovery of oil has heightened expectations that citizens, especially those living adjacent to the deposits, will benefit. President Uhuru Kenyatta in March signed into law a long-awaited petroleum bill that regulates oil exploration and production and outlines how revenues will be shared between the government, local communities and companies. Of the revenues due to the state, the law allocates 20% to local government, 5% to the communities living where oil was found and 75% to the central government. An earlier draft gave 10% to the communities. The law also says Parliament will review the percentages within 10 years. The European Union expects Britain to honour all financial obligations made during its membership of the bloc, even after a no-deal Brexit. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said if Britain leaves without a divorce deal, it will no longer legally owe the money agreed by his predecessor. Johnson has vowed to take Britain out of the EU on October 31st with or without an agreement to manage the unprecedented divorce and the expected economic fallout. The European Commission spokesperson Mina Andriva added that Britain had not officially raised the issue of the bill with EU authorities. The escalating U.S.-China trade wars hurting the United States economy and American consumers. Retailer Walmart and department store Macy's have added their voices to the dissatisfaction. Nomboyoselo Tango reports. Walmart, the world's largest company by revenue and among the top choices of daily shopping for many U.S. residents, have issued a notice of rise in prices in its stores. Residents say that the country's president, Donald Trump, has done a bad thing and they are heading for a recession if the trade war doesn't end. Although the Trump administration insisted the trade disputes won't hurt the country's consumers, analysts say otherwise. According to a J.P. Morgan Chase report, the tariffs already imposed on China are estimated to cost the average American household $600 per year. If the U.S. starts to levy tariffs on another $300 billion of imports from China on September 1st, this is expected to further rise to $1,000. The U.S. dollar is trading at 360.52 Nigerian Naira, 10.82 Botswana Pula, at 101.93 Kenyan Shilling and at 13.04 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.13 Brazilian hail, 66.06 Russian ruble, 71.86 Indian rupee, 7.16 Chinese yuan, and a 15.28 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 81 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,528 and platinum at $856 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $58.97 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Now it's time for us to cross and over to the sports desk. Here is Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara, from the Sports Desk. A very good afternoon. 
Starting off with football news. South Africa's national women's football team is currently in camp ahead of their 2020 Olympic qualifier against neighbours Botswana. The match takes place on Friday night at the National Stadium with kickoff at 1900pm Central African time. Banyana Banyana will be without the injured Timbi Khatlana and captain Janine Van Veik, while Linda Matlalo has been left out due to the hectic club program and the long distance she has to travel from China. Banyana departed for Botswana on Wednesday. Coach Desiree Ellis is happy with how things are at camp at the moment. I thought today's session as a start-up went really well. Um, uh, Leandra only arrived this morning. She flew in. Um, but other than that, uh, we have a clean bill of health. A um, few struggling with a bit of a cold, but uh, that's expected with the weather and players coming from all over. So uh, I thought it was a good start. Banyana Banyana came into this qualifier after having been crowned the 2019 Kosafa Women Champions for a third time in a row. They also participated at the FIFA Women's World Cup just over two months ago. Botswana have been camping in Slovakia, preparing for this encounter. Coach Ellis knows the importance of getting a positive result on Friday. We have to win the match, of course. Um, we know that... Uh um, they've always given us tough times, um, but we've also sometimes made it very difficult for ourselves. And playing the away league um, first, uh, it's important that we that we score a goal. Um, but uh, they've prepared overseas. Um, I went to Slovakia and prepared and went back into camp yesterday. Um, so obviously they will be ready, um, but we need to be on top of our game. In rugby news, the clock is ticking towards the kickoff of the 2019 Rugby World Cup edition to be staged in Japan next month. The Springbok opened their campaign against arch rivals in New Zealand in Yokohama. The box edges support from South Africans through a slogan titled Hashtag Stronger Together. The national team coach Rasi Erasmus shares more on what the hashtag implied to the nation. Yeah, I think for, for us, is, um, first of all, from, 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 from us as a, the players and the team side, is, as long as you keep on talking about us, I think there was a stage when you stopped talking about the Springboks, um, and even when it's bad things, we're even glad about that. So as long as you guys keep talking about us, uh, giving us advice, even sometimes when it's not great things, as long as you're talking about us, we feel it, we feel you behind us, and as you, that, that's all we can ask from you guys, supporting us, you know, and even the media, uh, you know, we read the stuff that the media are writing sometimes it's good sometimes it's bad and and we feel everybody must just play their part and, and then we're stronger together Box captain Siokolisi looks back at their two years journey in preparations of the global spectacle and also urged the South Africans to rally behind the team at all times we just want to say thank you for supporting us uh, through the tough times and as we've been working hard the past two years to try and make sure that we gain a better respect back and we know that our work is not done yet and your support means a lot to us. It, you guys come into the stadium, without you guys we won't be able to do what we do and yeah it means a lot to every single player here to see you guys at stadiums and your messages and yeah wearing your jerseys on Bok Fridays means a lot to us and don't get tired of it, it means a lot to us, I know we might not say something back at times but we work as hard as we can to make sure to make you guys proud. And finally, in tennis, Serena Williams trounced old four Maria Sharapova 6-1, 6-1 in their blockbuster first-round clash at the U.S. Open in New York yesterday to get her quest for a record-tying 24th Grand Slam title off to a flying start. You know, like I said, she's such a good player, you know, and when you play her, you have to be super focused. So every time I 
come up against her, I just bring out some of my best tennis. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Itio Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again back here at 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. Should you have any comments on the show, be sure to send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or you can send us a WhatsApp to plus 27763003327 and you can also tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour is Moving On by Asa. We'll see you again later. In the middle of the night if I came inside without a sound, suddenly my life was turning upside down. 